Children's Church is always looking for volunteers. So if you want to spend some time with those lovely children, most of the time they're lovely. I have four, so I know. You may join them. Sign up in the back. Definitely. We need helpers all the time. Same thing with the nursery. We could always use the extra servants. Turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 22, where we continue to walk through this amazing gospel. This week, I, uh, I ran across some interesting facts that I want to share with you. Really, it's just one fact that I just turned into this big old story. And so, I found out that the highest paid TikTok star made quite a bit of money last year. TikTok is an app. You probably saw about it in the news where kids or people can video themselves doing goofy things, and it's like an entertainment thing, and people get sucked into it. I know I did over the last week, and you can get distracted. And so this lady, this girl, she made $17.5 million in 12 months. Let's just put this in perspective. Tim Cook of Apple took in 14.7. So this young lady on this app made $17.5 million in 12 months. Keep thinking about that. All she had to do was lip sync the songs and dance to them. That's all she did. And that's what got her started. Then of course she diversified her portfolio and she's genius, right? So she started selling brands and buying things and anyways. You know how old this young lady is? 17. 17 years old making 17.5 million dollars a year. Are you jealous yet? We have this unhappy human tendency to highlight our own success and tear down others. We attribute their success to something like, oh, they were given a golden spoon in their mouth, or they were at the right place in the right time. I mean, if it weren't for this app, she would have never been there. You know, when I was 17, I had to walk up hills both ways, carrying a backpack in the snow, right? We, we, we talk about how great they have it and how terrible we have it, how when we're successful, it's based on our intelligence, our hard work, it's our, uh, our skill. Discontentment, jealousy, and jealousy is no stranger for us humans. You know, I think this is something that we all struggle against. Even in ministry, maybe more so in ministry, pastors and congregations get jealous of others. You see the church down the street having phenomenal growth. Or that pastor everyone talks about, and you're over here working hard, and that pastor seems to have not have to work. And everybody shows up week after week, they just flock to him because of his charming personality. So it, the question is, is, it, is ambition wrong? Should we be ambitious? Should you be ambitious? Is some ambition okay? What happens if we're not ambitious? And so I think in your mind, you're already either justifying ambition or saying, oh, no, ambition is terrible. I love sitting on the couch eating potato chips. I'm never ambitious, right? So we have two options in our brain that's going on. But our passage this morning highlights the human tendency to be jealous of success, and then it helps us understand the struggle of what ambition and success look like. That's what, it, what is at the heart of this passage. And so John the Baptist's disciples become jealous of Jesus and his ministry 
success. So let's go ahead and read. So John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where they spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Aon near Salim since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. So he who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's close in prayer or open in prayer. That's a good sermon in itself. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that comes from it. Father, as, as, you, as we know, we must decrease and you must increase. Father, we pray this in your name that we would be people that would seek your fame and not our own, that we would be people of the kingdom and not people of the world. Lord, I pray for this church that we would be a church that seeks your kingdom and not our own, that we would be a church that seeks Christ and him crucified and not us and us elevated. Father, I pray that this would be a good corrective to our hearts, that we would see ambition rightly. Father, as a pastor, this has been such a life-giving passage to my own heart. You know it has cut me to the quick. It has carved away some of the cancer of sin in my own heart. So I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for giving us the option to confess and to turn, to turn to you. Lord, we thank you for these things in the name of Christ, the beautiful name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. I kind of like that we sang the song um, twice that we just listened to, I Have No Other Master. And that's John the Baptist's motto, if you will. We see the setting here in verse 22. John, the author, tells us we are entering a new narrative portion by letting us know after this. Look at verse 22. It says, after this. What we see is that John, the author, not John the Baptist, we've got to keep these separate, so that's going to be very difficult. So I'm going to call him by the name, the author, versus John the Baptist. Okay, so John, the author, is connecting this story with the previous one. Remember, John, the author, has not always been going chronologically. We've talked a little bit about this, how he is using these narrative passages to tell the story of Jesus rather than giving us a chronological narrative. If you want chrono chronology, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very much more chronological than John. And so John is telling us the story because he wants us to believe in Jesus Christ. He wants us to have eternal life. And so he connects it by saying, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. We know that Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing because in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So the disciples are baptizing. He has commissioned them to the task of baptizing. Now, this is not the same baptizing that we do in a Baptist church 
after Christ. Just so you know, the baptism that John the Baptist was doing and that the disciples were doing was a baptism of repentance of sins. So it was very much for, do you want to be cleansed of your sinful lifestyle? You come and you get baptized. It's a, a symbol of this change that you are committing to, you're turning. This was not uncommon in Jewish society at the time. So this is not super novel. There were lots of cleansing. In fact, if you go to Israel, they will show you the big cleansing locations, these big tubs. Really, it's more like big holes in the ground with stairs. And there's these big areas where you go and you immerse yourself, you wash yourself. The Jews would wash their hands before they entered the temple. External cleanliness was very important. So this is what is going on here. So the disciples are baptizing. Though John the Baptist is also continuing his baptism. But look where he moved. It says here in verse 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim. Now we don't really know exactly where these locations are. These names have been lost to us. But what we do know is that he likely moved north towards more Samaritan territory. And so he's moved further out into the wilderness. He has kind of gone from um, Tucson to Sierra Vista. He has kind of gone from Sierra Vista out to Bisbee, from Bisbee out to a, some small rural country. He's moved further away from where everybody is. And so John the Baptist seems to be retreating as Jesus seems to be approaching. And this is important to know the location. John the Baptist moved out of the way for Jesus to do his work. And he found a place with plenty of water. Now as a Baptist, I cannot let this go. Do you see that it says plenty of water? If I'm going to sprinkle babies or sprinkle people, I don't need plenty of water. Immersion, okay, dunking them. All right, just a little side note. You cannot let that go as a Baptist. All right. So the type of baptism, we already talked about it. John, the author, wants to make clear that during this time, it was before John the Baptist was thrown into prison. Look at verse 24. Since John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we know later on, John the Baptist gets thrown in prison and later is beheaded by Herod. This is before that. So John is giving us some time indicators to help us understand what is going on. And then we see that people are still coming to John the Baptist, but there begins to arise some tension. What is going to happen? Look at verse 25. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So now we have kind of a debate. And we know the Jewish leaders at the time were very skeptical of John the Baptist. They didn't like him. He was some rough guy out in the woods coming in and baptizing people. And so they were like, what authority do you have? Why are you doing this? And John the Baptist was just a thorn in the religious leaders of the time's side. And so the Jews would send people to question him, to debate with them, to try to trap them up. And so that's what's happening. So remember how I said in the Gospel of John, when it says the Jews or the Jew, it's usually referring to some type of leadership folks, the, the opposition party of What's going on? And so they, this guy comes and he begins to debate them about purification. And so the disciples bring them to John the Baptist. John the Baptist in verse 26. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who the one who you testified about and who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So for some reason now they bring Jesus into it. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples are baptizing, and you are baptizing. 
what's this about? What's the debate? Why are we, you know, what's going to happen? And so there's some jealousy, which is pretty common. Have you noticed that the followers of a certain leader tend to be more zealous than the leader themselves? Like the followers of John Calvin tend to be a lot more militant, and the followers of Arminius are also a lot more militant. And we have this kind of in um, engaged battles that happen when likely the two leaders of these parties would not be so hostile. In fact, we know that Arminius was a student of Calvin, but that's neither here nor there. That's some church history stuff. So what we see is that there is tension. For some reason, Jesus is brought up, and we have some exaggeration going on. Everyone is going to him. Everyone. All of Sierra Vista is going to that other church. Oh my, everyone is going to him. Everyone. So we have the moment of truth. What is John the Baptist going to say? All right, folks, pack it up. We're going to go over there and we're going to go across the river from Jesus and we're going to baptize on this side and they baptize on that. We'll see who's better. We'll have a throwdown, right? A rap battle. Who is going to spit the best rhymes? We're going to fight each other. That's not what John the Baptist says, is it? In fact, John the Baptist models for us what every Christian worker should be, what every Christian should seek to demonstrate, right ambition or correct ambition. John the Baptist has the right ambition by cultivating a right perspective, a right posture, and right performance. Those are the three points. So this is only possible through right worship. Our object of worship drives our perspective, our posture, and performance. And they all rhyme with P, so it makes it really fun. Right ambition through right worship. You could sum up this whole sermon, right ambition through right worship. So, how do we have right ambition? Well, first we start with right perspective. Let's read verse 27. John responded. So now we have the tension. The disciples of John the Baptist are ready to rumble. They are ready to fight this disciple of this upstart Jesus. And there's a dispute, and so they say... What are you going to say about this, John the Baptist? And John the Baptist responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. Kind of a strange response, don't you think? The wrong perspective of ambition is evident in the way that the Jewish leaders sought to get Jesus crucified. John, the author, is very, really well uh, written. He's very smart in how he organized this material. Because if you read in the rest of the gospel, you see the ambition of the Jewish leaders. The ambition of the Jew Jewish leaders, their jealousy is what got Jesus killed in the end. In fact, as I was reading in Mark during my Bible reading this week, Mark 15 talks about Pilate. And Pilate knew that the chief priests were envious of Jesus. And that's why they were seeking to get rid of him. It was out of envy that the, the chief priests wanted to destroy Jesus. So John, the author of this gospel, is making it clear that while the Jewish leaders had a bad perspective, John the Baptist had a right perspective. So the English translation of this passage makes it hard to see how it connects with our two earlier passages. If you remember the very beginning of, of chapter 3, we began to talk about what does it mean that you must be born again? And so I, I tried to show you a connection at the end of chapter 2. It talked about 
he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then all of a sudden in verse in chapter 3, there was a man. So Jesus is talking about what is in man, right? And then we see John, the author, picking up this theme. And what you don't notice in verse 27 is John responded, no one. Actually, it says no man there in the Greek, anthropos. So the word man is there, and it, it makes sense that they've used no one or human or something like that to try to make it clear, but you miss that the theme of this whole passage is what is in man. No one can receive anything. Do you see how that sounds so much like chapter 3, the very beginning of you must be born again. You must be born from above. You cannot be born of your own strength or your own power. It is not by works that we are saved. So this is continuing that same theme along. John the Baptist gets it. He recognizes that you must be born from above. You must be born again. Man's ability and, and man is woven into this whole passage. So what can man do? How is man born again? Jesus says, must be born above. John the Baptist says, you must be born above. Nicodemus is like, what? Nicodemus was wondering, how can man get back in the womb and come back out? It doesn't make any sense. John the Baptist is understanding. He has been illuminated to be able to see this. John the Baptist here says, no man can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So John the Baptist understands that salvation is a gift from God, not by human works. But he also ties this in to his ministry, his ability to do ministry. He recognizes that all ministry is a gift. Verse 28 says, You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He recognizes that he has a particular task. He has been given a commission. He has one job. It is a gift that he is able to do. So we are given circumstances, we are given abilities, we are given gifting in order to accomplish what Christ would have us do. In fact, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Not just me as a pastor, not just the elders, but all of us. All Christians are stewards of the mystery of God. And you have been given circumstances, abilities, and giftings in order to accomplish what he has for you. You know, the Apostle Paul really gets this. And if you wanted to do an interesting study, you could go and read through all of Paul's letters and see where he talks about ambition. What is ambition? Because Paul was an ambitious man. Um, he was set up on a trajectory of ambition uh, from birth. He was very zealous for God, and he has quite a lot of achievements. He mentions them or lists them for us in Philippians 3. But he counts them all as dung, right? As dirt or trash, or even a dirty word, right? He, he says these are junk. There's nothing that I have done that is worth or should be compared to knowing God. So how does Paul think of ministry? Well, Romans 12.3 tells us, For by the grace given to me, you hear that grace given to me, it's been given, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly or think not like a drunk person as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Did you hear that? God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So this does not mean that we, we don't work our hardest, 
This does not mean that we sit on the, on the couch eating potato chips. I just like potato chips today. Uh, we sit on the couch eating potato chips and get zapped with the Holy Spirit and then jump up and we're like super strong and we do the task. Like Samson, when his hair grows back, all of a sudden has the ability to, to suicide bomb himself right, by knocking over the pillars. That's not what we're talking about here. We have the ability that is given to us and we put our best efforts into it. It means that success depends on the Lord, not on us. How freeing is that? It frees us of jealousy and it frees us of this rat race that so many of us live in. It means that we are stirred up to do good works by the grace of God. Now the application that we can pull from just this one or two verses here is vast, right? There's a lot that we could talk about when it comes to this for application. But I, want, I really want to hone in on one thing, that you are a minister of the gospel. If you are a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. That is your primary job. You have been given a stewardship of the ministry of reconciliation. You have been given a task, which is to be a gospelizer. If you take the word gospel, it's almost like gospeling, uh, gossiping the good news. That's kind of how it's used sometimes. It's kind of a verb in many ways, not just a noun. And so you are to do this. This is an active thing. You are to share the gospel. You are a gospelizer. You are a minister of the gospel. Has anyone ever told you that? That your job as a Christian is to be a gossip gospeler. You are to gossip the gospel. You are to spend your time gospelizing. That is what you are to do. The pastor and the elders are here to equip you for the work of the ministry. We're not supposed to be the ones doing all the work of the ministry. You do the work of the ministry and we equip you for it. That may be a mind shift or a mindset shift for you because a lot of times we come to church, the pastor does all this work, he gives us a little nice meal and we take it, we eat it and we go home. The reality is I'm actually giving you a picnic basket. The idea is that you have a picnic basket and now you take that basket and you go home and you unpack it and you share it with people. That's the, the idea that I want you to get from this passage. And so as I'm preaching, the reason you take notes is because you're putting stuff into your picnic basket to take with you for the rest of the week. We're not having a meal one time a week and then just starving the rest of the week. We're taking it and moving it on. That's why these home groups are going to be important in February because we're going to unpack the picnic basket and we're going to share the meal with one another. Okay, a lot, enough of that illustration. But God has placed you in a particular place, in a particular life circumstances, to be obedient to Him out of the joy of knowing Him. You may be succeeding at your job. You may be failing at your job. You may be struggling. You may have it all together or you may be falling apart. If your ambition is victory, you will fail. The most important thing in your job is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. That is what success looks like. And you may be a stay-at-home mom. You know what your job is? To gospelize your children. That is your job. God has placed you in those circumstances to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You may be responsible for changing out toilet paper and tissue. You do that to the best of your ability, to the glory of God. I, I go back to this saying a lot, but Martin Luther was asked, what should a cobbler, a shoe person, a guy who makes shoes, a Christian shoe 
maker do? What should they do? Should they put little crosses on all of their shoes so that everybody knows that these are Christian shoes? He said, no, no, no. He says, a good cobbler, a Christian cobbler, wanting to serve God to the glory of God, makes the best shoes that he can. Makes the best shoes that he can. That's how we, as Christians, into our world, our marketplace, and we serve to the best of our abilities, doing the best we can. It means we don't seek to cheat or to backbite or to backstab, but we trust in God to bring the growth, to bring the glory. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I like to win games. When we play games at my house, I like to win. And when I don't win, it's very tempting for me to be grumpy and, and unmotivated because I am competitive by nature, and so I have to rein it, that in. And so a lot of times, I will pull back and not be so uh, competitive because I know that it could lead to sinfulness. Now, if I was so bound and determined to win, I could likely find ways to cheat, couldn't I? I have lots of ways to cheat in these games, especially as your kids are younger, it's easier to cheat because they don't catch on. But if I cheat on a game... What does that teach my children? What does that teach about ambition? Well, it says that anything is acceptable to win. If we approach our lives like that, we are going to lose. Jesus asks this question, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? In your job, in your task, whatever you are doing, I want you to ask that question of yourself. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose your soul? What does it profit me to, to get that pay raise if I have to lie, cheat, and steal to get there? What does it profit me to have that brand new pickup truck with the lifted, uh, you know, lifted kit and the big old tires if I have to steal money to get it? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? So which brings us to having a right posture. So John the Baptist illustrates his right perspective by emphasizing a right posture. He gives us a word picture of a wedding. Let's go ahead and look down at verse 29. It says, he who has the bride is the groom. Okay, that makes sense. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He paints this picture of a wedding, a joyful wedding celebration. And he says it's like a, a best man at a wedding. John the Baptist recognizes the place and posture he should have. He knows that he is not the bridegroom. He is the best man. His joy is found in the bride and the groom being united. Now this is a heavy cultural passage. There's a lot of cultural underpinnings to understand what John the Baptist is saying. Now, we can kind of get it already. I don't think it takes a genius to understand that the best man should not be trying to, to marry the bride, right? The best man should not be trying to woo the bride. We, we get that. We see that in our culture. We see lots of movies made about it. But this is distinctly Jewish. And if you are a Jew, you would know that a wedding ceremony lasts several weeks or probably a week at least, if not longer. And so you're having this wedding and the bridegroom and the bride, they go into the room or the tent at the end of the ceremony. And we all know what's supposed to happen, right? They're supposed to complete the marriage. They are supposed to, uh, what's the word for that? Consummate, not consecrate, consummate. They consummate the marriage. And the job of the best man 
is to stand outside the door, and when they consummate the marriage, he's supposed to make an announcement to the party guests. Now, this is kind of crass in our society because we don't like to talk about this stuff. But once that happens, he's listening for the voice of the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom says, okay, it's finished, truth's completed, whatever, the guy goes out to the party guest and says, okay, the marriage has been consecrated, right? And everybody's consummated. Everybody is, everybody is happy. They're excited. And, and the wedding is joyous. And so that's like a privilege for the best man. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's saying that being the best man means that we can celebrate when the bride and the groom get together, when the groom consummates the marriage. And so he recognizes his place. But also there's a lot more to this, isn't there? Because Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Often we see the Jewish people referred to as the bride. Um, Zion is represented in the Old Testament often as the bride. But we also know that the Jewish writers of the New Testament also took that same language and applied it to the church. In Ephesians, we see that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. He gave himself up for the bride. And so John's work is to bring the bride of Christ, the people of God, to Christ. He is not to make himself look good to the bride. He's not trying to woo the bride. How foolish would that be? You know, this should revolutionize our ministry. I want you to think about it. What if every pastor and church in the world put the focus off of them and onto Christ? Instead of trying to woo them by wearing really cool clothes and having a hip personality, what if instead they tried to point people to Christ? Instead of saving people or trying to save people by wooing them to the church, we need to be wooing them to Christ. This is, again, a mind shift, mindset shift for us. I heard a pastor explain it this way. He says there's this king. He marries this woman. And this woman is beautiful. He keeps her kind of dressed in plain clothes. He doesn't put a whole bunch of makeup on her. He gives her simple clothing that's beautiful. She's, a, she's just a beautiful bride to him. And so he says, hey, I have to go on a journey. I'm going to be gone for a long period of time. Um, and he puts the steward of the home in charge of his bride and says, you know, take care of her while I'm gone. And he goes. He goes on his journey. And he's gone for a long time. Well, the steward starts realizing that the people of the town are beginning to drift away from the king because the bride is just so plain, so ordinary. She's not dressed up. And so the steward decides he is going to win them back to the king and the kingdom by putting on lots of extra makeup on the bride. He's going to get her some clothes that maybe show a lot more cleavage and show off some, make her more revealing to the world. And then he parades her around the town so that the people in the town are drawn to her in order to draw them back to the king. What do you think the king is going to do when he returns? He's going to look at that steward and probably execute that guy. He's like, you have turned my wife into a prostitute. You have drug her around town to attract her to carnal men, to carnal men, men who are, are just so wrapped up in worldly things. They're not respecting the king. They're driven by their lust. But that's what the church in the world, in America in particular, seems to be doing today. We put on fancy clothes to the church. We try to make the church 
look extra fancy with extra programs. We put smoke machines up here and fancy strobe lights, and we try to copy the world, and we try to draw the world with carnal means. And what, what, a, what a, a pastor has said in the past, he says, what you win them with is what you have to keep them with. So, of course, we could have money. We could just throw money out and just give money to everybody who walks in the door. That would bring in a lot of people, wouldn't it? Well, what happens when the money dries up? They're going to go somewhere else. So what are we winning people to church with? Are we decorating the bride of Christ? Are we prostituting the church? Or are we winning them to Jesus Christ through the simple and ordinary means that he has given us? The preaching of the word, the singing of the psalms, the encouraging of one another, the fellowship, the body and the blood broken for us, the baptism, the ordinances. Friends, I see that as wrong ambition. I see wrong ambition thriving in the church today because we're dragging people to church with means that are not right. Now, it's not doing this right will lead to failure and sorrow. Doing this right means we'll get to be part of the joy, the means that God has been given to us. We can be the best man pointing to the bride and the groom. Seeing people be saved and people turning to Christ and away from their sins, that should, we should rejoice at the success of others for we are bound together in Christ. So this passage points to having a right perspective and posture, but also right performance. William Carey, when he was dying, he's a, a Baptist missionary to India. When he was dying, he said to his friend, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. Let that sink in. I desire that Christ and Him alone be magnified. Don't talk about all my good deeds. Don't talk about all my efforts for the kingdom. Talk about the King." It's summed up in John the Baptist saying, I, or he, must increase, I must decrease. Let me get out of the way and encourage his success. It's not about me, but about Christ. Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. The, if our object of worship is Christ and his greatness is our ambition, then how we perform changes. You are no longer jealous when someone else gets recognition. You are no longer driven by the kingdom of self, but the kingdom of Christ. If you really want to know the character of someone, watch how they fail. Watch them fail. Now you can learn a lot about someone when everything seems to be going right. You will go to their head. Will they take advantage of their success? But you know what? You learn a lot more about someone when nothing seems to be going right, when everything they do is a struggle. How we approach our eclipse matters. We need to rejoice over the gifts and ministry of others. I have heard it said that a true friend is one who is genuinely happy for you when something good happens to you. The missionaries that were in Senegal before my parents, when they got to Senegal, it was 1962. 
The first church they established was in 1980. 1962 to 1980. They had seven members. Seven members for all those years of striving and toiling in Africa. Through the years, they had people who declared they were Christians, but then would turn back. How discouraging to labor all those years and not see success. If their perspective was based on victory or success rather than faithfulness, they could have just packed up and went home and said, we're not cut out for this. This can't be God's will. We're not having success. But they would have missed out on what God did after them. They set the foundation that was later, later what led to my parents' ministry. And then, of course, then the Newkirks. You remember when the Newkirks came and shared with us their ministry and all that God is doing, how they're planting churches and all the good things that are happening. If those early missionaries had just packed up and went home because only seven members joined the church after from 62 to 80, the Newkirks ministry probably wouldn't even be around. Our performance needs to be based on our faithfulness, or another way would be obedience to the revealed will of God. We want to be ambitious in obedience. That should be our ambition. Our ambition should be to be as faithful as we possibly can be to God and what His Word says. I like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 6-7. through 7. We have a lot of ambition happening in the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth was fighting over who baptized who, which is probably a good reason why Jesus didn't baptize anybody earlier. And they said, well, Paul baptized me, Apollos baptized me, this guy baptized me. And so Paul has to write a whole letter to these folks because they're bragging about who baptized who. And Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So what is our assignment from this passage? Now seeking innovation and new tools to point people to Christ, Jesus is not wrong. Ambition is not always wrong, but the why and the how is important. The why and the how. So I want you to examine your life this week. What and where are you ambitious? Or I guess I would just say, where are you ambitious? Is it for your own fame, for your own glory, your own comfort? Do you want to be like that $17.5 million TikTok star? Do you serve the church so you can get something in return? Do you want attaboys? And recognition, is that why you serve the church? If that is your ambition, to be recognized, to be famous, then you need to pray the words of John the Baptist. You must pray this, He must increase. I must decrease. How are you going to decrease, yet be ambitious to make Christ known this week and the coming weeks? That is your challenge that is what we need to pray towards. Father, as we looked in this passage, ambition is, is not wrong. We don't have to worry about uh, seeking your fame. We want you to be made known. We need to be faithful and obedient to your revealed will. What your word says is how we can be successful. Father, I pray that this church would be, a, would be filled with people who are ambitious for obedience.
ambitious for right worship. If Christ is who we truly say that He is, if we have been tasked to make Him known, then that should be our, our life's work. The striving of our hearts and our efforts should be pointed to that end. God, You have placed us in so many different circumstances. Our church has people that are in so many different jobs, in so many different community events, that we could make an impact for You. If only we would seek Your increase and our decrease. But Lord, how often is it that we go into these places and we try to make ourselves the chief, the head of the show? Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts today, that you would transform us, that we would recognize that our ministry is a gift from you and that our salvation is a gift from you, that we would seek to, to share that gift with those around us, that we would try to point them to the one who brings true and living water. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.